The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. day we seek protection from our nightmares, security that they cannot haunt us in the sunlight. But sunlight can burn, brighter and harder than anything, and force our terrors out of the darkness. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and prawn cocktail, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's exposition, the latest in a series covering films outside the podcast's usual remit, examines the 1984 television film Threads, written by Barry Hines and directed by Mick Jackson. My guest is Chris Arnsby, and to join us in a perfectly normal street of a major British city. Hello, Chris. Hello. Well, it's very nice to see you again. Um, this is the first in-person recording um, Cinema Limbo's done in about a year and a half. Blimey. Yes, that's quite a while, isn't it? Yeah, I'm trying to remember the last time that I recorded with you. Uh, it would have been nearly two years ago. Exorcist 2, possibly. Yeah, that sounds about right. Did we, not, did we do another one that day? We did, and I'm struggling to think what it might have been. Fantasia? No. No, I don't think so. Well, anyway. Yeah, lost in, <laughs> lost in the mists of time. Um, well, this is part of the series of Cinema Limbo specials leading up to the 100th episode. Blimey. I know. Um, very hard work's gone into this. Mm. To get to this stage. Um, so for this special series, I wanted to cover films that would fall outside the remit of Cinema Limbo as normal, which had to be underappreciated films. So having done um, short films rather than features, um, and a film that was never even properly released in uh, The Thief and the Cobbler, I thought I'd go back to a suggestion you made when we were recording the very first episode six years ago and talk about threads. Ah, right. It's nice to know that my miserable experience on Wednesday evening was my fault. Oh, yeah. Um, now, prior to preparing for this, I'd never seen threads. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, I don't think I've ever had the sort of immediate opportunity. I mean, it's been out on video for years and that mm. kind of thing. But it's only, think, uh, it's only, I think, been repeated once in the last 15 years or so. Mm. I think possibly just before I got digital TV. So it's been it's slightly far away. and you know, It's been a slight effort to actually track down and watch it. So I got hold of a DVD secondhand, and it turns out that it's not the nice new... Uh, so is, it, is it a Blu-ray? Uh, there is a Blu-ray version, but I've only got the DVD because I wanted my apocalypse in as low a resolution as possible. Oh, right. Because there's, there's a new mm. release which has various commentaries and documentaries yes. and things. The one I have is not that. It's actually... <laughs> is it Revelation, I think, was the label it came I out I don't of. think it's even that high quality because it's sourced, I 
think, from the original VHS release. Oh. To the extent that it has, once you press play on the menu, it has the original um, warning from the VHS release and then the BBC video logo from the mid-80s. Blimey. So So it's such a cheap and shoddy release, they haven't even bothered cutting off the bits that aren't supposed to be there. Um, I, I watched the, f- the film f- first once through, and I had deliberately intended only to watch it in pieces, mm. not to watch it all in one go. And I think that was the right choice. Yes. Yeah, I think I can understand that. Um, going through later and watching it in pieces, it took me, I think, two weeks to get through the whole thing. And that was partially because I you know, had other things to do as well, because I'm afraid. Yeah busy social animal but also it's it's an effort it's horrible isn't it it's it's not just because it's a grim depressing miserable story it's because it feeds directly into my own fear Mm. and deep-seated nightmares yeah did you see chernobyl yes yes i did how did you watch it i mean obviously on television, but did you watch it all in one go, or week by week, or what? I think I watched it uh, episodically. Over what period of time? Uh, it would have been a relatively short period. It might almost it might almost have been one episode a day. Okay. Um, I've been intrigued by the you know, the acclaim that it's had, and it's mm. again it's something that looms large in my mind. So I borrowed it from my local library because everyone should. Yes. And so I had to watch it in the space of a week. And I actually watched it over four days. I watched the last two episodes back to back. And on two of the four subsequent nights, I had nightmares. Yes, I've, I think I've had a similar kind of experience. There's a podcast that I've started listening to called Atomic Hobo, which is very, very good, and I can thoroughly recommend it. It covers a lot of the background material towards nuclear war and nuclear disaster and that sort of stuff. And... I had to stop listening to it briefly after I had a series of dreams that involved me uh, being left in charge of an out-of-control nuclear reactor. That's, yeah, that's like a, a combination of several dream tropes all at once. Yes. Were you naked as well? I think probably all my teeth fell out as well or something, but that would have Well, happened. that was after the explosion. Yeah. So, yeah, Threads has a reputation. Mm. And I think you're probably more tuned into that than I am, because did you watch it when it first went out? It's, you would have been too young, surely. It's one of two programmes that I was banned from watching. What was the other one? The other one, weirdly, was An American Werewolf in London, when that was shown on BBC television. Oh, that's fair enough. Yeah. That's quite unsuitable for a child. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was on the front cover of the Radio Times, and it's a picture that's well worth looking up if you've never seen it. It's an astonishing image of a traffic warden with his head bandaged and obviously the radio times turns up and i've never wanted to see a program as much as i wanted to see threads and my dad just put his foot down and said that there was absolutely no way and it yeah and so it kind of became one of those vaguely mythical programs for me mm. um and it subsequently turned out talking to him years later about it he had seen something unsuitable when he was about my age which would have been 13 and I'm not entirely sure what it would have been. He would have been too old. For, that would have been too old for it to have been 
a public showing of the war game. It must have been a draw. It must have been play for today or something. You know, in the late, maybe in the early fifties or something like that. And he said it absolutely did a num. It did a number on him, and it made him really un uncomfortable and really nervous. And again, gave him nightmares and stuff like that. Might it have been the um, BBC version of nineteen eighty four? Possibly. Yeah, could well have been. And essentially, when Threads came around, he remembered the reaction he'd had to a, to this earlier TV program, and that was that was the reason he put his foot down. He just and, and having subsequently seen Threads. He was exactly right. Yeah, that's good parenting. Um, in contrast, a friend... You showed this to your nephew. <laughs> no, no, no. In contrast, a friend of mine um, who lived up in Cambridgeshire at a place called Alt Alconbury, which is right next to an American airbase, his sisters were really involved in the CND movement. So when threats came on, they forced him to sit down and watch it on the grounds that this is what was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, all the sisters are like that, aren't they? Um, so, Threads has kind of burned itself into the collective memory. Mm. Um, it's, I mean, uh, when we spoke six years ago, I was aware of its reputation. I was aware of it being this, like like staring into the, to, to the void or something, mm. as though it's something that changes you. There's a few... BBC programs that have, I think Ghostwatch has a similar kind of reputation. There's not many, I don't think, but um, there's definitely a few TV programs that have just acquired this mythical reputation. And, yes. th and Threads is definitely one of them. Well, the funny thing about Ghostwatch is that it was unavailable for such a length of mm. time, um, even though the subject matter is completely fantastic and fictitious. Whereas Threads was, as far as I know, it's never been out of print on home video. Or certainly not for any extended period of time. Yeah. And the BBC did have repeated it at least twice. Yes. Yeah, interestingly, the, the 1985 repeat passed me by completely. Um, considering how obsessed I've been with the idea of watching Threads in 1984. I think the, the Radio Times intercepted that week. May well, it may well have been, yeah. And then it came out on DVD around... 1999 and I, it was the classic thing of walking into a shop one day and just suddenly seeing this program that I'd, re I'd remembered as a kid no option of seeing it in the meantime um yeah and i, I think I, I think um that would have been the first dvd i ever bought because it was oh. just this thing of looking at it and going ah the holy grail on sale right in front <laughs> of me I suppose i'll buy a copy then and i took it home and i watched it and then I fell into the slough of despond. Mm. To, from which you are yet to emerge. Mm. Um, that version may have had the uh, opening music change. That was the one, yeah. Um, because I think on the version that I have, and certainly on the, 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 current, the new remastered version, which uh, is the original uh, director's cut, um, it begins with narration over the opening of Richard Strauss's Alpine Symphony, mm. which is a really, it's a really strange choice of music because it's it's supposed to be a musical portrait of sunrise in snowy mountains. Mm. But it has this very uh, disquieting, sinister tone to it 
And the imagery we're shown is a spider weaving its web. As a narrator tells us that in an industrialised society, the foundation is the connections between people. And these threads are both what makes it strong and what makes it vulnerable. And funnily enough, it picks up on the same kind of themes that you would see in stuff like Termination Survivors and Dare the Triffids and things like that. You know, the idea that what happens... But obviously this is the real-world example of what happens when society stops, I suppose is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Our setting is Sheffield in 1984. And we start with a couple in a car on a hillside as jets pass overhead. And these are Ruth and Jimmy. And one of these characters is going to stay with us. Yes. And there's, um, I think it, I remember when I saw this for the first time, obviously the big tension through threads is when is the bomb going to drop? Um, and it's weird. I, I'm not, you know, it feel, it does feel a little bit like the director is playing games with you a little bit. And certainly with that initial sequence where they're in the car and suddenly the jets go screaming over the head, you do kind of, there's a moment when you think, is this it now? Mm. And I think that's, I, I think that's, there's, there's a few occasions. There's one particular point, I think, where you hear the whistle of a factory siren and another point where you hear just the sound of a milk float. But because it's that kind of electric drone, I don't, you know, I, th I think he's playing tricks with the sound design, but obviously I'm not 100% sure about that. I think there's there's certainly a, a, a repeated ratcheting of tension that it could come at any time. So we'll have mm. these repeated noises that it could, it, the, there's no chance of warning. Yeah. Really. You'll get like two minutes to say goodbye to your family. And then that's it. Yes. Um, but really, I mean, the, the bomb doesn't fall until about 40%, the two-fifths of the way into the movie. Yeah. Because I watched the movie in five pieces and it happened to be at the end of the second piece. Oh, yes, yeah, that makes sense. actually quite convenient to remember where, how far I'd got. Um, they turn off the news from the, the car radio and um, they talk about spring coming in and um, looking for somewhere to live together. On the news, there's a film of uh, an a Soviet convoy in Iran. So we have a distant sense of international tension somewhere somewhere far away. Yeah. Yeah, nothing you need to worry yes, about. Yes, a small war far away in an unimportant country, yes. Yeah. Like, um, like February last year when you were seeing on the news how you know, there's this bug going around and people in Italy being very cautious and you're thinking, oh, what's that? What's terrible for them still never mind i sat in a pub with a friend and we talked about this strange disease that was being reported in another country and it was only later that it struck me that the two of us had had the kind of conversation that characters in survivors episode one in fact actually not even in, in effectively in the setup to survivors episode one because of course when that kicks in the pandemic's already underway yeah but yes, yeah, it was very, very odd to think back and realise how kind of predictable my reaction to uh, to that was. Um, 
we move to May and Ruth has discovered that she's pregnant. Mm. Uh, Jimmy assures her that it isn't the end of the world. But we get these uh, short, illustrative vignettes of character. Very short scenes. Yes. Um, Jimmy's parents uh, find out and they're very annoyed at the news. and they, they feel that Jimmy and Ruth should get married. Yeah. And it's a very domestic drama. One of Mick Jackson's original plans um, as director was to cast actors from Coronation Street. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. I think it would have put what I call the Roger Moore effect into overdrive. Yes. Which, which is that in the film... Um, the Man Who Haunted Himself, and I've probably mentioned this before. Roger Moore plays a very uptight, serious businessman, has a car accident, and then thinks he's being followed around by a doppelganger. At the end of the movie, spoilers, he realises that he is the doppelganger. And something in his mind breaks, and he has this total psychotic breakdown. And seeing Roger Moore, normally so calm, so collected, so effortlessly in command of any situation, completely go to pieces, is quite upsetting in what is otherwise a fairly pulpy beam. Hmm. Seeing the characters from Coronation Street going through a nuclear attack and dying of wounds, of radiation sickness, of starvation, of exposure, of violence and brutality, I think that would have gone over the line of what people could cope with. Yes, I mean it's a, it's but the thing is, it's such an intriguing idea for a for, for actually for a series to, to to imagine a series where you do two or three years of regular soap like comings and goings, and then suddenly you end series three on the four minute warning. Would yeah, I, I yeah that would just be kind of baffling, wouldn't it? Well, that is a bit like the, how the last episode of Dynasty ends with one of the characters being abducted by aliens. Yes, that's true. I mean, it has to be really good for you to get away with that. <laughs> completely idiotic. Mm. Um, and I think that's why Jackson decided this probably wasn't a good idea. Yeah. And also it's BBC production with yeah. appearances. And yes, I, he was... I, I doubt Granada would have been keen to see all their characters killed off in a nuclear holocaust. Yeah. And he's too he's too early for uh, he's a year too early for EastEnders, and the only other long running series the BBC had at that time would have been I don't know Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Only Fools and Horses did do an episode with Dell, Rodney, and Grandad in a nuclear bomb shelter, and it's rarely repeated. Oh. I think it's the last episode of the first series called The Russians Are Coming. And they talk about you know, what, what would happen if there was a nuclear war. And it still has that usual you know, mm. humorous inflection. But there's, there's a line that's cut where um, Rodney says, oh, no, it, you know, there'd be total devastation. It would, you know, there'd be nothing left. And um, Dale says, oh, yeah, but there's bound to be a corner shop open. Yes. Except he doesn't say corner. No, no, and again, what a different TV environment it was at the time. There is a really nice punchline at the end of the episode there where we finally get an external shot of the the, the bomb shelter and they've built it on the roof of the <laughs> Nelson Mandela house. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's potentially angels they could have done. Yes, the, yeah. Uh, the hospital set soap, triangle yeah. less so. Are you being served? Yes, who knows? 
I feel that sitcom might not be the vehicle <laughs> for it. No, possibly it might be the wrong medium. Um, I mean, we're a couple of years after Whoops Apocalypse as well. Yeah, that's true. Um, which is what the film version of Whoops Apocalypse has been on my list of podcasts to do. Mm. I think since I first drew the list up, because it's a film about nuclear war and it's a comedy, but it's. A comedy about a subject, it, it's like someone's made a comedy about your parents' funeral. <laughs> it's a subject that is so personal and so deeply felt that you cannot possibly laugh at it. Mm. The TV series has the, has the kind of the support of the fact that there's a studio audience laughing. Yeah. The movie doesn't have that, of course, because it's... It's a proper film. So it's a, it's a really grim, depressing experience. And it's not the fault of the film. No. It's the, the subject matter they're doing. It, no matter what they do, they can't make this funny enough. No. Dr. Strangelove is completely removed from reality. And it's, it's, it's about the build-up build as well, rather than the aftermath, I guess. The, yeah. film, the, book, the film of what's popular. Actually, Sorry, no, it's Doctor Strange Love. Yeah, but it's Doctor Strange Love is this you know, bizarre parody. Well, yeah. Well, I think so is Whoops Apocalypse because it's so. I think maybe it's, it cuts Whoops Apocalypse cuts closer to home. Mm. Even though you have like, the Prime Minister who believes that unemployment is caused by invisible pixies, and the um, the President has started to have his um, political opponents crucified on the White House lawn. Somehow that uh, it's not as funny as the funniest film ever about nuclear war. Yeah, it's more. Dom I mean, uh, Whoops Apocalypse is more domestic, isn't it? With Doctor Strangelove, you've got what Mick Jackson said he didn't want in Threads, which is the God's Eye View. You've got the people planning the nuclear war. You've got the people responsible for it. Yeah. So you kind of see behind the curtain. Whereas with Whoops Apocalypse, it's a bit more. Ironically, it's a bit more like the British government's genuine war plan in that there isn't one. Or, or, or that the, the, the British government's war, war plan is basically, you're going to die in a ditch. I mean, it would have been, I mean, going by the same idea, I wonder if it had, would have had more impact if instead of um, Geoffrey Palmer and um, David, um, Peter Jones, they'd had the cast of Yes Minister. Hmm, what in... In, in the TV series of Whoops Apocalypse. Yeah. I mean, the TV series is very good. Mm. In the film, the Prime Minister is Peter Cook. Yes. Who plays Peter Cook in everything. It's the, that's, the, that, that's the film that's got the sequence where his scheme to... He's, he's developed a, a protective device to stop people from being affected by fallout, hasn't he? Is it an umbrella with a Union Jack on it? And... That sounds worryingly realistic. And then there's a sequence where you see him going from door to door, and I think there's one, but he goes, oh, no, you voted Labour, you don't get one, and he moves on to the next house. And they're only giving the umbrellas to Conservative voters. How incredibly unrealistic. Yeah, yeah, we're satire. I mean, that's literally what would happen now. <laughs> Jimmy's brothers play a little video game. Mm. That'll come back. And... Um, Jimmy also has a little um, pigeon loft um, where he has the radio on as we get more stories of what's happening in the Middle East playing in the distance. Mm. We also get these recurring 
um, captions on screen, filling in extra detail yeah. that, that the story can't really incorporate. So we're told that Sheffield is a major centre for industry, that it has a number of major potential nuclear targets in the area, which is why Sheffield was chosen as the setting, yeah. um, because it has um, industry, population, and also, I think, at least two American military bases in yes. the area. yeah. And a cooperative local council at the time, because they were a nuclear-free zone. Oh, yes. sounds ironic in the context of threads, but my understanding is that what that meant was that they didn't want to be involved in the government's plans for civil defence. So they weren't... Co apologies if I'm getting this completely wrong, but they didn't cooperate with the government's civil their civil defence plans in the event of nuclear war. And this made them more cooperative when it came towards filming. Yeah, they were more willing to take part in uh, a production that would obviously be... Critical of government. By, by, by their very nature, yes, it's not so much that it's... Threads isn't a film that's critical of the government's civil defence plan. It just points out, factually, that there is no civil defence. If, even if there, even a Labour government civil defence plan... Mm that was sympathetic towards the needs of the people is not going to work. No. I mean, the interesting question, I suppose, is you, you, you obviously had Scandinavian countries and a few other places that made a lot more preparation for their population in the event of nuclear war, you know, civil bomb shelters and things like that. I don't know... I don't know if they ever made anything like threads. Um, I suppose the closest you've got is America, where they... Weirdly, they did slightly take civil defence seriously a bit, at least in the 50s. And then, of course, they go on to make the day after. Which is kind of inadequate. Yeah. It's a more colourful version of Threads. That's the one where... Um, not, well, not only does it have nothing to do with nuclear winter, mm. which I think is because they didn't really know about it at the time. They hadn't figured it out. Yeah. But uh, Jason Robards, who plays the lead role, has a nice white shirt on for the whole film, <laughs> even long after the bomb has dropped. Yeah. Well, but on the other hand, we get to see Steve Guttenberg dying of radiation sickness, and that is not soft-pedalled in any way. No. No, it's an odd film. You're right, they, they, were, they were very unlucky, I think. I think. God, I sound like I have an unhealthy interest in this. And it's partly because I do. Um, the day after in the UK was shown in December 83. Right. And Threads is February 84? I think so, And yes. apparently that that difference in production was enough that the day after doesn't talk about nuclear winter and Threads does. It's just fascinating that there was, you know, that both programmes were basically made on either side of the cusp of discovering it. Yeah. Um, the two sets of in-laws are preparing to meet and as bad news plays on the radio. And so it's like there's a parallel of struggles. You have the two sides mm. in this family and there's a reconciliation in the middle because Ruth and Jimmy are, you know, they're, they're determined to try and make it work. They get to see a flat. They're optimistic about the future. Um, I say I've written plans for the future and then I've written a frowny face. Well, I mean, I don't know if that's... I think, Just like a general comment, or I think that probably represents the future in general, at least yeah. in the world of threads. It's interesting as well. It's it's very it's very low stakes domestic drama. The parents they're not 
outraged by the idea of you know that there's no sort of Kathy come home thing of people being cast out on the streets or you know you're not like my daughter it's 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 very very realistic for want of a better phrase it's how you imagine that families would cope with a situation like this yeah and you know everyone's prepared to meet the other set of mm. relatives and it's all it's, it's tense but under normal circumstances you think this is probably going to be fine yeah everyone's trying to be nice and supportive yeah yeah um, and it's mentioned that, you know, if you're you know, getting married and having children, all that puts years on you. Again, mm. that's foreshadowing. As in the background, a submarine is reported as being sunk. Yes. And we get one of the very few, I think the only person in the film who I actually recognised, um, an American correspondent or ambassador or somebody, is played by Ed Bishop. That's the President of the United States. That's... Yeah. Uh, uh, Captain Blue? Yeah. Um, and Commander, Commander Ed, Ed Straker, Straker yeah. UFO. Uh, he's got such a recognisable yeah. voice. He was the. He was. I'm amazed it's not Shane Rimmer. <laughs> well, he was. He was British television's tame American at the time, wasn't he? I think if at least if was it Donald Sutherland was for a while. I think. Well, he's Canadian, of course. Well, okay. but, but yeah, same. Yeah, same same idea. The narrator talks about emergency plans as well. Mm. That. Um, each area has a wartime controller uh, among the uh, civil government who appears to have been appointed entirely arbitrarily and been sent on a few weekend courses. Yeah. I and think... most of his staff don't really know what they're doing. And um, I think in some cases didn't even know that they'd been picked for their particular roles. Mm. Did I mention that the government didn't ever really take civil defence seriously in the 80s? Well, yeah, they, it's it's odd because you think, well, they should have, but the trouble is, mm. I, th I think they're being they're being brutally realistic. Yeah, given the size of the UK, you can't. There is no civil defence plan. You know, the cities and the towns are, are packed so closely together that, that anywhere is going to, would have been affected in the event of a nuclear war. And, but at the same time, you don't just want to appear to be going, bye, to everybody. And I, I, I suppose protect and survive and all that sort of stuff was, was painting a happy face. I, I don't really know. I don't know how to describe it. Hmm. So what was Sheffield Council's attitude then? As I say, Sheffield... My they, they weren't going along with it, so what were they doing instead? Uh, I think they were basically just... Uh, I, I think... I, I mean, obviously there were loads and loads of jokes at the time about, oh, yeah, so-and-so... You know, Sheffield's declared itself a nuclear-free zone. That means the cruise missiles will go round it. Um, it wasn't the only nuclear-free zone, was it? Looney Lambeth, I think, also... Oh. Did it as well. Some places used it as an. I think the the whole GLC might have done actually. Oh. The Greater London Council, but some places used it as an excuse to give the government a bit of a kicking politically. Some places did it for more sincere reasons. I think the argument was just that there was no point in spending the time and limited resources on on this because. Either it wasn't going to happen, in which case it would have been a waste of money, or if it did happen, it wasn't going to accomplish anything. So, but as I say, I'm not, 
it's entirely possible I'm mangling all this. <laughs> yeah, but you're making it plausible, and that's what the film's doing. Mm. Um, we see blankets being stockpiled in schools, and um, someone working in, a, in an allotment, and there's a bang overhead. That's like another of your yes. false starts as a jet passes by. Yeah. Oh, that's when Jimmy goes out on his stag... Not, not exactly stag night, is it? But is it his last throw of the dice before... Um, yes. Uh, with his, his friend who looks exactly like Ray Winston. <laughs> Which I thought, that's Ray Winston, isn't it? It's not. No, it's... I mean, it, it would have... I mean, it makes sense that it could have been because he was exactly the right age at the time. Yeah. But it's not Ray Winston. And also, we see that the military alert state is upgraded to Amber. Yeah, which... Um, I lived on a military facility at the time of 9-11. Oh. And I remember the um, alert state went from black to black special. Black special? They found a new shade of black. I mean, yeah. I can understand that. Black special was what... Well, black was normal. Oh. It was just like sensible security measures. Oh. Black special was alertness. Um... And uh, his friend says as well that, uh, oh, because they're eyeing a couple of girls at another table. And he says, oh, you know, you want to go out with a bang, don't you? Yes. And there's nothing we can do about all this. You know, if, if the bomb does drop, I want to be pissed out of my head and right underneath it. Isn't this, this is the first time in the film, is this where the news is on? And yeah. the public changes the channel. And yeah. for the first time in the film, people are actually starting to get engaged in the situation. Yeah. Um, and this is when the, the when everyone in the pub actually asks for the news to be put back on, I think. Yeah. Uh, the Prime Minister announces on the news that, that uh, she's supporting the Pentagon mm. as well, because that'll end well. Um, uh, Jimmy ends up having sex in his car yeah. with the other girl. Because it worked so well with Ruth. Yeah. And uh, they're interrupted as a military convoy passes. Yeah. Uh, there's an announcement that the USSR has been given an ultimatum to withdraw from Iran by that Sunday as more troops are sent in and the CND protests. Mm. Um, Mick Jackson got the job, or originated the project rather, having made a documentary for the QED series called On the Eighth Day. Sorry, I'm going to sound like a complete nerd here. The, the, the QED documentary he made was called... A I think it was called A Guide to Armageddon. You're absolutely right it is. On yeah. the 8th. Uh, this is terrible. I, I, I just... I, I sound There's like no the shame in knowledge. Worst kind of born out. On the 8th day was... Um, it's actually available on YouTube. Oh. Um, it's the documentary that was shown the day after Fred's, which is the first TV documentary about nuclear winter. Right. Yeah. So, yes. There's no... Sh well, we'll talk about that when we get on to... Talking about something else. Yeah. But um, there's never any shame in knowledge. I just wish it was something a bit more cheerful about, you know, why, why do I have a head brimming with useless facts about nuclear apocalypse? Why can't it be about happy dogs or something? <laughs> well, speaking of which, have you seen The War Game? Yes. Um, it's good. Um, it's good to what... Uh, you see, good is almost exactly the wrong word to use. It's an effective film. I think Threads... It's like it's like Threads' little brother, basically. The odd thing about the war game, I think, is how 
threads on the board game parallel each other very closely in structure. Yes, um, they do. And I think Mick Jackson has, has, has said that one of the reasons he wanted to make threads was because the war game was uh, verboten at television centre. You know, they'd made yeah. it, they'd shown it to the Home Office, who had gone, oh, we'd prefer it if you didn't show this, if you don't mind awfully. And they went, okay. Um, and that was enough that as with any kind of big institution, you didn't need to come in and be told you can't do this. It was just accepted that some things were off limits and the war game was one of these things that was off limits. So instead, the rights passed to the British Film Institute that released it in cinema, showed it in America and it won an Oscar. Yeah, and that's how my dad saw it. Um, again, I, I don't know if it would have been CND, um, but there was definitely an organisation at the time that was uh, that, that bought hold of film copies of it and was showing it in church halls around the country. My dad saw it in the Medway Towns, which is what gets nuked in the war game. Yeah. yeah. I saw it at the BFI and um, I have Blu-ray at home. Oh. It's, it's surprisingly compact because it's only 45 minutes. Is it as short as that? Yeah, it's really only like a normal programme. Okay. But it's obviously much more of a documentary with mm. dramatised elements rather than a, a proper drama as, as threads is. And again, the another sort of thing that might drop you out of it is one of the narrators is Michael Aspel. Yes, he is, isn't he? From, yeah. from the days when he was a newsreader. But that's there are elements of um, the war game that echo very strongly in, mm. in threads and there are some scenes that are really uncomfortable. Um, like there's a shot of a, a burning car and the narrator says very calmly and flatly, inside this car, a family is burning to death. Yeah, that's... There's no answer to that. Yeah, there's... And uh, small children are interviewed, interviewed in inverted commas, um, about how they see the future. That's after the bomb's dropped. And one, and one boy just says, I don't want to grow up. Yeah, and that's... It's, it's awful, mm. but... It needed to be said. The reason I'd heard that um, it wasn't shown at the time was there were concerns from the BBC that it would provoke mass suicides. Yeah. And quite possibly. Um, I, well, possible that it would provoke mass suicides? Uh, uh, sorry. I, I yeah. don't think so. I mean, I can imagine that no, being I a real concern. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can. I think I, I can, you can. You can see why they would have been concerned. But no, I mean, obviously, threads didn't result in that. No. And... Um, Threads in the day after had the exact effect that the makers wanted, which is the right people saw them and realised the path they were on and started to do something about it. Mm. Reagan has said, or he, he told Nicholas May, the director of the day after, I saw your film. And that's one of the main reasons why the... Uh, nuclear anti-proliferation treaty with the Soviet Union happened. Yeah, it's astonishing, isn't it? You know, to, to, to make something that you can actually say, look at this, this actually had an effect on the world. Yeah, there's not yeah. many, there's not many pieces of media that can say that. No. But it shows the importance of art and culture yeah. in doing good in the world. 
Um, the government has taken control of transport crossing the uh, channel mm. as there's a speech in the centre of the town. And the speaker, who I assume is from CND. Is this, yes, he's, he's pulled away by the police, isn't it? No, no oh. the woman. Oh, yes, sorry, I'm getting right now, yeah. Who says, well, what, imagine what will happen if there is a nuclear war and Russia wins. They will have conquered the corpse of a country. There will be no infrastructure, there will be no industry. Agriculture will be almost impossible. It, it, will, be a, it will be ashes. Yeah. All of which turns out to be exactly yeah. true. Um, and in the background, the Salvation Army starts marching by. Yes, which... Which is pure chance that happened that day. Oh, really? Yeah, they just happened to be passing. I said, right, film that, because that's appropriate. Yeah. That reminds me of, I mean, I'm competing with you now for knowledge of yeah. nuclear war things. Uh, the film The Beach. Uh, no, On the Beach, sorry. Right. Um, based on the Neville Shute novel. Um, that's about the aftermath of a nuclear war where Australia has been spared. Um, it was in some way neutral in the conflict and wasn't affected, but the rest of the world is dead. And people are living with the knowledge that the cloud of fallout will eventually reach them. And there are, there, there's a recurring element in the film of uh, Salvation Army rallies in town encouraging people to convert, encouraging people to join, with a banner saying, there's still time. It's not the end yet, you still have time to join and find your place in the kingdom of heaven. And the film ends with Australia to a, a dead continent. Yeah. And the final shot is the banner across the street saying, there is still time, which is obviously a message for the audience. Yes. Very impressive film. I mean, Gregory Peck and Ava Gardner and lots of big stars. Like, it's the only post-apocalyptic film I'll ever see with Fred Astaire. Wow. I, I, given my unhealthy interest in nuclear Armageddon, I haven't actually seen it. It's it's a peculiar film because it's because there was that whole spate of post-apocalyptic films mm. in the fifties, and this is one that has a big cast and proper you know, lavish location filming. Yeah. Who does Fred Astaire play? He plays a physicist. Okay. A um, dancing physicist, I hope. No, I think it was his first non-dancing <laughs> film. Okay. Um, but he, um, they, they have the world's last Grand Prix. Wow. Where people stop bother about safety uh, okay. measures because what's the point? Yeah. And he wins. And he drives home and seals up his garage and runs the engine and suffocates. Wow. The government hands out suicide pills as well. Mm. And it's suggested that um, Anthony Hopkins, Anthony, Hopkins, Anthony Perkins, who's an American naval officer, and his pregnant wife will take them before the fallout comes. It's really grim, but yeah. it's kind of it had to be said. Yeah. And it's nice having Gregory Peck in the lead as well, because he was a very notable champion of liberal causes time mm. it's always that people you don't expect like Vincent Price was one of the first major uh, campaigners on behalf of gay rights oh, good for him because his, his daughter's gay 
Yeah. And I mean, he was, he spoke publicly about it. And, yeah, it's a price. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder people always cheered him on when he was in films, regardless of how, however many people he killed on screen. Yeah. Um, we see baby clothes being knitted. Yes. Kind of like a denial of reality. I think it's all. Again, there's that. There's the, the, again, there's that. Obviously, life goes on. There's that sense that they will sort things out because they always have in the past. You know, obviously, everybody got very, very anxious during the Cuban Missile Crisis. We'd just come off the back, actually, in '84 of the big NATO exercise, hadn't we? Whose name is Able Archer '83. Yeah, and they didn't realise until afterwards just how close that came to provoking the Warsaw Pact. And um, to an extent, the Falklands War as well. Yeah, that's true. I mean, um, pretty much. What are you laughing at? Sorry, you've just reminded me of a really dumb anecdote, but. Bear with me on this one, because where else am I ever going to get a chance to tell it? I was at boarding school in 82, and we responded as if this was the Suez campaign or something. And literally, my memory of the Falklands War is that every morning, the school would gather in the library, and one of the kids had a portable radio and would listen to the news on the portable radio. And it was like the Sermon on the Mount sequence in Life of Brian. Uh, in that the kids at the front heard the news and everyone else got relayed to them through an increasingly inaccurate game of telephone. And I was told one morning in 82, we've lost Sheffield. And I went, how have we lost Sheffield? Have the Argentinians nuked it? And it had to be explained to me that no, Sheffield was a boat and... Um, and that actually, you know, and that actually the Argentinians didn't have nuclear capability. But of course, having just told that story, I've just realised the irony in 82 of me being concerned about somebody nuking Sheffield. And here we are talking about a film made two years later, in which Sheffield gets it. Oh, well, I can't have any, I can't follow that with any No, sorry, just, it was just you talking about that, it just suddenly it twigged a memory, yeah. I mean, the, uh, the advantage, in inverted commas, of the Falklands is that Everyone really, apart from the UK and Argentina, were neutral. They just thought it yes. was some idiotic skirmish, and it certainly wasn't. And, you know, it didn't escalate anywhere because no one really. Understood. Where was it going to escalate to? Yeah, exactly. South Georgia. Yeah. Um, we're told there's going to be a special announcement. Oh, this um, the boy runs into a supermarket and announces that the fighting has started, mm -hmm. and they start clearing the shelves. Yes. Again, yeah, that's reminds me of something not a million miles away, yeah. a million years ago. Um, and there's going to be a special announcement on television, and we see the street the streets lit with these um, this sort of sepia light as well, um, as the uh, a neighbour packs up to leave, and they're trying mm. to get the dog into the car. And he's worried that about turning off the gas in case the whole street blows up. Yes. Yeah, don't worry about that. Um, Russia has cut its connection to uh, Russia. So no, they've they've cut the link from West Germany to West Berlin. Yes. Um, 
whilst the emergency commander is told he's going to have to leave and go into the bunker. Yeah. Hospitals are cleared, grandma is moved in, roads are closed. There are signs of explosions in Iran. That's right. That's one of the weird, that's one of the strangest secrets is that nobody's sure whether they've used tactical nuclear weapons, are they? But they don't like, doesn't it account, it comes up somewhere saying that they've detected increased radiation levels or something. And yes. It's just such an odd, the idea that nobody's really sure what's going on quite. Well, that would in a way be paralleled a couple of years later when the Chernobyl disaster happened and the outside world didn't find out about it until the alarms at a nuclear power station in Sweden were tripped mm. and they couldn't figure out what was wrong. Yes. Um, the controller packs a picture of his wife as well. And um, she's actually come into the office to see him off. Yeah. She? yeah. And there's the, there's the man giving the speech, as you said, with um, say, oh, people say, oh, what about you know industry? kind of thing. So, well, I don't, I'm as patriotic as the next man. I was against the common market. As <laughs> yeah. though that makes any difference anymore. There's someone selling a tin opener for £1.50. Yeah, sensible man. And art is being put into storage. That's, that's again, that's a weirdly... That's, I think, lifted from World War Two when a lot yeah. of material from the National Gallery and the National Portrait Gallery were taken out of London and put into coal mines. Yeah, and it's just that because you kind of realise that these things... This time around, there's nobody to take it back. Well, this time around, there's not going to be anyone to take it back out again. No, well, they'll be completely worthless. They'll have no mm. value anymore. Because there'll be no culture. Is this the point? We, I, 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 it, it, it slightly blurs into one. We've, we've had the point now where the police have rounded up subversives. Yes, I think so. And that's... What a futile thing to do. I mean, it's just... It, it, it parallels kind of what happens in the wake after the nuclear war when Britain turns into this bizarre and frightening bureaucracy. But it's the state, I, I'm struggling to find the right phrase, it's doing it just because it can. What's this, what's this one guy in Sheffield going to do, sabotage Filingdales? And, and it, it, it's, it's, it's just... It's a little, um, another mid-80s nuclear story, When the Wind Blows, mm. about an elderly couple in their little cottage reacting to the approach and occurrence of a nuclear attack without understanding really what the situation is. Yeah, treating it's it, just the Second World War, isn't treating it? Treating it like yeah. it's the Second World War all over again. And I think that's the whole, yeah, we're going to round up subversives before the war starts, we'll put them in a camp so that, you know, the end the enemy will have to come and get them. Yeah. It's not how it's going to work this time. It just, I, I, I struggle to find the right words, but the idea that in the last days of British society, we're just going around rounding up the support, it just, it's, 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 it's I don't know, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic? It's just... Exactly. At this point, it's, it's too late to do anything else. Yeah. It's uh, in the plan, so let's do it, yeah. Um, Ruth is stripping wallpaper from the wall mm. of their new flat, and she just stops and cries. They've got the, <laughs> they've got the radio on, 
And Wonderful Radio 1 has had a change of programming, hasn't it? Because it's now just playing Protect and Survive on a loop. And it's all those terrifying radiophonic noises and um, sort of synthesised bleeps and things that they used to use. Patrick Allen telling you how to bury your relatives yes. if they die while they're in the shelter with you. And there's a horrible... That, that was... Uh, I got. I, I remember reading a copy of Project and Survive and getting to the point where it says that should anyone die while you're in the fall, while you're in your inner sanctum, you should take them outside and you should label them. And I sat there and went, why do you have to label them? And then it wasn't until a little bit later they said, oh, it's because you're going to die as well, and the state would at least like to know who some of the corpses are. Hmm. It's just again. It's just. It's just this vision of Britain as this horrible bureaucracy that wants to tick all the white boxes, and the the plan must be followed. And yeah, can't let any of the gaps in the form be incomplete. No, exactly. Fire engine. Fire engines are on standby, and dawn comes up on Thursday, the twenty sixth of May. Uh, I remember something else, which is not even nuclear related, but there's a Ray Bradbury story called The Last Night of the World, oh. which is a very quiet story about a couple at home and the husband from somewhere has got the idea that this is the last night of the world, that there won't be a tomorrow. And the, the two have a nice, quiet evening at home, assuming that they will never yeah. wake up the following day. And it ends with them just quietly going to bed. Mm -hmm. Ruth has morning sickness. Mm. And um, her father is going through the... No, it's Jimmy's father who's going through the instructions to build a shelter, which involves him taking a door out of its hinges. Um, they notice that the phone goes dead as well, while the people in the um, government bunker have their breakfast. Yes. The narrator notes that in Washington, the time is half past 12, and that with the president and his staff having had little sleep in the last few days, now is the time when the response will be slowest. And this is when the attack sounds. The lights in the bunker flicker, there's sirens, there's panic in the streets. There's the infamous moment of a woman soiling herself. Yes. And at 25 minutes to nine, the first blast detonates. A strike on the nearby airbase. And the shockwave flattens much of the city. Yes. And that's a distant attack. I don't know. It, it, it's not Farlingdale's, is it? Because that's the early warning station. I can't remember what they, they do name the airbase. They do, yes. Um, so if... If I really cared, I guess I could probably go online and see exactly how far away it is. But yes, it's just the it's the scale of these things is just astonishing. Mm. Um, and it's the sound design in this sequence that's astonishing. The, the, the nuclear attack sequence in Threads has got a particular power, and I struggle to kind of explain exactly what it is about it that makes it so... 
I'm trying not to use the word evil, <laughs> but it's really it's it's astonishingly powerful. It just you know just you you every time I watch it, there's something about it. It's um, it just leaves me feeling sick, and it's obviously it's a combination. I think I think the sound design has got a lot to do with it because you hear panic in the streets, you hear people shrieking, you hear dogs howling, um, and then it kind of then you go, then obviously you get this again a kind of echoing the uh, the sounds on the protected survive audio you get this horrible synthesized noise cuts in as well don't you mm, it's yeah. just it's just brilliant it's a the things that bbc did well were not always the thing you know everyone jokes about the the, the bbc visual effects workshop and the fact that they were trying to create miracles on tiny budgets but they don't get enough credit for the talents of their makeup team and the sort of the radiophonics workshop and the people that did the sound design. And I think those are the areas where Threads particularly scores because they're just, they're all astonishingly well done. Mm. I had to do a bit of checking there in terms of dates because for a period in the mid eighties, uh, I lived on an RAF base. Oh dear. <laughs> And according to my dad, we were one of the targets. Wow. Which base? I don't want to say. Fair enough. Uh, because I'm not supposed to know about this. Oh, right. Okay. But um, I did check. We moved some there sometime in the spring or summer of um, 1985. I lived there for about two years. Yeah, we were out of, my dad was in the army as well, and he was out of the army by 84. Um, no, he wasn't. He was just on the cusp of coming out of the army. You know what job he went into when he left the army? Emergency, emergency planning. My dad would have been one of the people under Sheffield Town Hall. Except it would have been in Essex, but it was the same principle. I've been, I, I went down into the Essex Civil Defence Shelter. It was a basement under County Hall. Yeah, that would have been completely inadequate. Mm. Well, I would have been dead already along with everyone I know. Yeah, I think, so. I, I think I would have lasted a little, my, obviously it's curtains for my dad. He's not good because again, Essex County Essex County Hall was a seven-story building that would have collapsed straight onto its basement. That's so fucking ridiculous. (laughs) I know. Um, And at the time, Chelmsford was where the Marconi factory was based, so Chelmsford would have been a target. Yeah. Colchester, you've got the big army base up at Colchester. Colchester would have been a target. Harwich, you've got the ferry port. That would have been a target. Uh, probably they would have dropped a bomb on Epping just on general principles. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they've got, they're asking for it. Frankly. Yeah, and that's it. That's I, I think I've just wiped out all the major towns in Essex because, in fact, oh, Bradwell, not even a major town, a village, but it had a nuclear power station. So that would have gone. Oh, yeah, if that goes off, then that's basically the rest of Essex. You, dead. Would, you would have taken, you would have wanted to take out the infrastructure. And it's just that thing of working through this list of going, yep, 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 and... Yeah, I would have been surrounded by mushroom clouds. I mean, um, knowing what I know from the Chernobyl series, Mm. if you drop a nuclear missile on a nuclear power station, (laughs) 
Yeah. The it's amount, just, uh, I, I'm not sure you can measure the amount of damage that would do. It's just gilding the lily, really, at that point, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, they talk in that series about um, if the um, the nuclear fuel melts down to the groundwater, mm. that will instantly vaporise, causing an explosion, which will in turn destroy the other three nuclear reactors at Chernobyl. The resulting explosion will render most of Eastern Europe uninhabitable for the next 15,000 years. Yeah. This isn't the Christmas special, is it? No. No, I have, no. <laughs> Okay. Listener, you may have been aware that the Christmas specials over the years have had less and less to do with Christmas. That's deliberate. And I plan on continuing the slenderest of slender themes for as long as I can. I know what this year's Christmas special is going to be, and it has only the merest sliver of relevance to Christmas, mm. but it's there, and it's not this, because this is set in May. No, good point, yeah. It does have a scene set at Christmas. It does, yes, yeah, I've just realised, yes. Uh, no, this is, uh, hopefully, this will be going out in October. Okay, just the, in time for Halloween. Well, exactly. Um, we have another film lined up for the actual Halloween half, which is a more traditional horror movie, yeah. and is less likely to give people nightmares unless they're laughing themselves awake. There's panic as Jimmy's family struggle to put the shelter together, and Ruth's yes. family retreats into the, sh- into the cellar. And the narrator estimates that between two and a half and nine million people would have been killed in the first attack. It's just, just, uh, just, just as I say, the, the scale of it just kind of makes me want to shrug because it's... It's bigger than you can yeah, count. Yeah, exactly. Well, nine million is about the population of London. Yeah. And Jimmy runs through the streets because he's tried to get into a car, but the car won't start because the... EMP has burned out the starter, probably. Um, Look at me, Mum, I'm talking about cars. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, um, so he he starts running through the streets. That's the last we see. Yeah, that's it. We don't... The Kemp's daughter leans in, grabs a piece of toast off the table while her dad's mucking around with doors. And just walks out of shot, doesn't she? Yeah. And you never, that's it. We never see what yeah. happens to her. She just goes. It's like you said earlier, they've just become statistics. Yeah. They cease to exist as people. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that's so... <sighs> the Kent's son as well, I think, is killed. He's, he's killed in the blast. Yeah, that's got a particularly nasty follow-up. But uh, but no, you just, it, it, it spends a long time building up its cast. For, for a film that starts with two people, there's a point when it's suddenly got a cast of about 20. It's sort of... Yeah. And then, and, and yeah, and it just culls them. And a lot of them, yeah, they just walk off screen and that's it. An exception is uh, Jimmy's workmate, mm. who we last see staring at the mushroom cloud it's in disbelief yeah. and is left behind. He does come back. Yeah. Uh, we have flashes of things happening over silence. We see mm. what appears to be a cat burning to death, oh, which is actually it's actually a cat that's had a, a big dose of catnip. Oh, it's rolling around in delight. <laughs> just having a look and, and then the film was reversed, and then yeah, just some some filters on the screen. So actually, absolutely fine. Nothing to worry mm. about there. But we see, I think, like a, a burning human hand yeah a one-legged man crawling through devastation don't you see at one point rubble 
that's just running red. Yeah. Um, a man on a bike up a tree on fire. Um, yeah, it's just it's again it's just I think the 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 hand on fire. I think Mick Jackson has said that that was an he did research about what the survivors at Hiroshima saw. That's an image from Hiroshima. Mm. From this point on, the teletype, which appears on screen to deliver additional facts, is silent. I didn't. I, that's something I've never noticed before until until this time round, and that again goes back to what I was saying about how good the sound design is, because it's it's the mechanization is taken away, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Oh, well, poor old Mrs. Camp has got it, hasn't she? She's on fire. Yes, she's she's caught in a flash and is very badly burned. Um, it's estimated that around 210 megatons have been dropped on the UK. Um, the, the shelter is you know, full of rubble. The, the government shelter. There's an interesting bit as well with that where when the initial strikes are going in against the military targets, you see them all being incredibly professional and they've got their charts and they've got these kind of, I, I don't quite know, they're, almost, they're like adult versions of spirographs and you're using them to draw circles on maps to map out blast effects and radiation spread and things like that. And there's all this very, very purposeful chat from people talking, and then the bomb falls on Sheffield, and that professionalism just stops. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, still, it's weird, in a weird sort of way, to, to, to go back to the Peter Watkins film, it's almost like a game at that point. There's stuff going on, and they're the umpires, and they're measuring it. And then, yeah, and then the war comes to Sheffield, and the game stops. Mm. It's, it doesn't become real until... You see it yourself. Mm. Uh, there's something specific I want to talk about about that later on. Um, I marked a viewer response. Then, <laughs> the reviewer response is, oh, God. And then I forgot to look anything up. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, when it was shown, Threads was given a rapturous reception. Mm. It won a whole brace of BAFTAs. It was very highly acclaimed. Yeah. And I think the fact that it lingers so strongly in the memory of the time, even people who didn't watch it, shows what an important piece of work it yeah. was. I, mean, I think we're jumping forward a bit in terms of summing up, but it's, it's it, it lingers. It, it, and the, and the yeah. fact that your reaction earlier, when I said I hadn't seen it before, mm. and it's partly, I think, because this is the kind of thing that I... You know, I've watched a lot of post-apocalyptic stuff. I like sci-fi, so it's kind of in, in within my wheelhouse. But the idea that someone like me hadn't seen it yeah, startled it, you. It did. It, it casts a long shadow. And I think the fact that I've mentioned it six years ago, apparently... Yeah, but you talk about it a lot. Well, this is true. <laughs> yeah. There are cries for help. Um, <sighs> That's horrible, that sequence. Yeah. Um, and we're told that fallout will, of course, come in through you know, yeah. broken roofs and missing windows. And that the symptoms of radiation, sickness and panic are identical at the moment. 
I think the other thing is worth saying, this the, the, the threat has a cast of unknowns, is that a fair way to put it? Um, pretty much, yeah. Not, not recognisable faces. But the, the, that's a bit of a risky strategy, but there are no bad performances in this. No. And again, particularly the bit with Mr. and Mrs. Kemp in the fallout shelter, where she's horribly burnt. She's, you know, and again, for full credit to the makeup people, she's horribly burned on one side of her face. And poor Mr. Kemp is trying to care for her. And she, all she can say is no whenever he tries to touch her because she's in so much pain. And they're in, and they're listening to somebody next door going, please help us. It's just. It's, it's awful. It's a nightmare. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it comes to a point where the nightmares you have from watching a film are basically identical to the film. Mm. Like, you can't conceive of anything worse. No, no, that's true. Um, I mean, yeah, radiation sickness gets worse. I was going to say, it does get Obviously, listen, oh, yeah. it does get worse because in a minute the camps are going to go out and look for their son. Um, uh, Ruth's grandmother is ashamed of having soiled herself because they, yeah. they're they stuck in the cellar. Uh, Mr. Kent does go up to look for their son and finds that he is he's buried in the rubble yeah. and he's dead. But that, again, it's one of the few... Uh, it's one of the few sequences where you get a sense for the scale of it. But my understanding of the way that they made threats is that Sheffield City Council said, we're knocking down this housing estate, off you go and have fun. Mm. And that sequence, as they come out of... There's, actually, when the blast wave hits, it's an astonishing shot, because as far as I can see, they actually blow up the side of the house. Yeah. Um if you go through it frame by frame, it, as, as far as I can see, yeah, they're, they're, they're filming in a condemned house, so they're allowed to do what they want, so they actually blow the wall off. Um, mm. But then you get that sequence where they go outside and it's just smoke and it's just fire and it seems to stretch on forever. And I think... I think it's just incredibly well designed, for want of a better phrase. I think, yeah. I think, I think they're playing tricks with false perspective and also I don't think... I don't think some of the fire is that far away, but through the eye of the camera, it just seems to go on. It, it's an astonishing moment. It does. It does more. It does a. It, it does a lot to sell the scale of this. In the bunker, it's already degenerated into yeah. screamed arguments. Um, yes. With communications, are very poor. Yeah. They're effectively working with hand radios. Yeah, and they're making requests to be dug out. Yeah, because there's a building. Not on top unreasonably. Of it. No, no, that. quite. No, that's yeah. that's entirely fair. But you know, there's a lot of other stuff going on as well. Yeah. And we jump forward one week. Yes. Yeah, we do, don't we? Which is unusual because the, 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 up to that point the pace has been incrementally smaller amounts, and then suddenly, but it would be a week of people sitting in fallout shelters and sobbing, I guess. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, food stocks are now under armed guards. Um, Ruth is effectively inconsolable. Yeah. She is convinced that Ginny is dead. Yes. And she also says that she wishes that her baby was dead. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, in the town hall, they run out of fags. 
Yeah. Just goes from, gets yeah. worse and worse. And the narrator says that there is little point in wasting food on dying people, mm. as it will be used as currency for work, yeah. as money no longer has any value. Is this that this is the point where they start to calculate calorie allowances, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. 500 calories a day. If you can't work, yeah. I think it's 500 calories a day if you can't work and 1,000. I think you get you get more if you can work, but yes. it's not a lot more. Um, Mr. Kemp goes for water and finds a trickle from a broken main, but he's clearly very sick and mm. despairing, while Ruth's grandmother is carried upstairs into the house having clearly died. Yeah. There's a bit earlier where Mrs. Kemp asks for some water and he goes out into the kitchen and he turns on the tap and a little dribble of water comes out and he's so surprised by this he hasn't got anything to catch the water in um, and by the time he's found something the little dribble of water stopped and what he's found is a colander it's just <laughs> it's just such a I, 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 there are a few there are a few moments it's not I don't quite know it. The black humour seems a bit odd. There's a, the poor Mr. Kemp's on the toilet when the bomb drops. Oh, yes. And there, there is one joke later on. Yeah. I think it's it's the British character that even in the absolute worst situations, we will still find things that we can make jokes about. Yeah. I think that's something that the day after struggles with because the day after is very serious. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And yeah. very portentous. And because of that, it makes... It's, its lapse is all the more bizarre. Yeah. Whereas this is trying to be ordinary and normal. Yeah. And it picks up on the odd, humorous things that happen. Like, as you say, Mr. Kemp's on the loo. Yeah. Um, or you know, grabbing the nearest container and it's a colander. Yeah. Um, we move forward to 10 days after the attack and we're told rainwater is toxic. Yeah. Um, we see pictures of the city and it is a ruin. It's the corpse of a country. And Ruth walks through the devastation. There's a woman looking for her daughter. There are burnt bodies. And the worst is a woman staring into space, comforting... Something. A, it's something that used to be a baby. Yeah. There's a, there's a kid... Rather like in the war, in the war game, the bits where they interview the kids. There's there's a kid running around just shouting for their mum. I think, isn't there? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just there's an odd kind of montage effect going on as well, isn't there? Because you see shots of Ruth kind of walking through the rubble and reacting, and then it will cut to a thing. So it will cut to the woman with the baby, and then it will cut back to Ruth, and then it, and it's just. It's very, very, it's it's horribly cumulative because yeah. it's this thing that you think, okay, this is now the, the worst thing I've seen. And then, of course, it's like, and here's something else. Oh, okay, now I've seen, and yeah, and it just keeps going. Every time you think you've seen the worst thing you possibly can, the film goes, we've still got another 40 minutes of this. Yeah. Ruth's parents have lost track of time and mm. what day it is but they hear a noise upstairs that is the last time we see Ruth's parents yeah the narrator tells us that around 500 megatons of debris and 100 megatons of smoke 
are in the atmosphere, and the resulting nuclear winter will lower temperatures by up to 25 degrees. Yeah, it doesn't, you know, again, I just, my response to that is almost a shrug, because it's just, it's just numbers. They're probably bad numbers, but... Well, think about the heat wave that we had earlier mm. in the summer. Um, the equivalent of that would be 10 degrees yeah. maximum. Yeah, and I suppose that's, and, and, and what, they're, what they're working out at that point as well, isn't it, is they're saying that actually Britain is relatively, because Britain's an island, it's got the warming effects of the sea around it. So Britain, by comparison, is quite, quite well off in terms of global cooling at this stage. Ruth visits Jimmy's parents' house, and um, oh, his mother. Right. His mother is there, yeah, and she is now dead, yeah. But uh, his father is somewhere else, and she takes one thing from the rubble, which is a book of birds, mm. as a memory. While the soldiers repel food rioters and fire tear gas, yeah, and live ammunition, I think as well, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. At 16 days, we see a crowd of people filing into a hospital. And this is the bit, on the occasions when I've gone back, I, I think I, what, the first time I bought Threads on DVD, I just watched it kind of slack-jawed. Mm. On the subsequent occasions when I've gone back and watched it again, I skipped this bit because this is the bit that I find unwatchable. It's too uh, much to deal yeah, with. Okay. But I did watch it this time round because obviously I do my homework. But, well, uh, thank you, because... And it was exactly as bad as I remembered it. Yeah. yeah. There's just blood and screaming and dirt. There are people having limbs amputated without anaesthetic. Yeah. Do you think Threads tips over too far into scaremongering does it just go beyond a point where it's going this is what it would be like and it just it just uh, do, do you think it goes too far no yeah the only reason scare threads was ever commissioned was to frighten people true yeah as long as it told the truth mm. as long as it was accurate to what experts believed would happen based on the balance of evidence then I think they're justified in doing anything. Mm. This scene reminded me of something that I was watching recently. Um, while I was in lockdown, I started watching you know, a variety of series with my mother. And one of them was The Good Doctor, oh. which is kind of a house knockoff, although it's from the same creative team. And it's about a, um, a young trainee surgeon who is autistic and it's quite a good series it's a little bit soapy and it's says cases of the week and that kind of thing but it's very good the most recent series started with a two-part episode about the characters coping with the covid pandemic okay and there's a scene or a montage where a whole string of patients are shown dying and their relatives saying goodbye to them over a phone being held by a doctor. And this happens over and over and over and over again. 
And that's what this reminded me of. Yeah. All the people who have not taken the pandemic seriously, have not taken safety precautions seriously, everything is theoretical to them. And then when you see something like that, you see what this actually looks like, it becomes unwatchable. Mm. And I think that's one response to the scene in Threads. When you see what this looks like, when you see the unimaginable devastation, the death on a scale that is almost beyond comprehension, the suffering and the pain of everyone, it's forcing you to understand something that existed previously only as an abstract concept when you see it happening to actual people. Yeah. Because I think that all those people who don't bother wearing masks on the tube have never had to think about or see someone being forced to say goodbye to their mother when they're on a ventilator over the phone because they can't be in the same room. And it was very tough to watch. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. But it was there with good reason. Mm. In the bunker, they're trying to figure out where to put criminals as they figure out the the whole 500 calories a day process. At 22 days, there are epidemics rampant. And this is, I, I I think this is around the point when I was saying about Britain becomes this bizarre kind of mechanised bureaucracy because this is where you hear the radio broadcast, which is all residents of Band A, which is, and then it lists a load of it, and it's residents of Band B. Um, and when we get in a minute to the soldiers, they're just referred to by numbers. Now, for all I know, that's a standard kind of patrol drill, but this whole thing of where entire streets have just become bands and soldiers have just become number one, number three, there's just this, you know, everything's, everything becomes depersonalised. But yes. maybe because that's the only way to deal with it. True. But you're losing something very important in the process. Well, yes. I mean, that's that's the classic argument, yeah. isn't it? Is if you're... If you surrender... What's the point in surrendering your humanity to survive? Yeah. If you're surrendering the one thing that makes living worthwhile. Exactly. And what's the point if this is the... If this is the, the the British state that you're attempting to preserve, what's the point of preserving? Yeah, yeah, and it's it, it's the state. What as an abstract, it's the state wanting to just wanting to continue to exist. It doesn't matter how it exists. It's just if this is how if this is what it takes for the state to continue to exist, then fine. This is what it will be. But yes, it's just very, very unnerving just watching this world where everybody becomes letters and numbers and bands and zones and things. Um, the army apprehends some uh, looters coming out of Ruth's parents' house. Um, her mother has been shot and her dad has been bludgeoned to death. Yes. Well, they get some cri- they, they get some crisps out. Yes, the, the the film's one joke, which is that. Um, the looters have some crisps that the soldiers take, but unfortunately they're prawn cocktail. 
Well, nobody likes prawn with cocktail. I like prawn cocktail. Oh, well. I mean, I, I know it's unpopular, but I... <sighs> they after... The thing is, you can't... Although that's quite a good joke. Yeah. But, like, you know, like, a bit like, you know, you only have dog food to eat and it's not even a nice flavour. Yeah. Has anyone ever laughed at this joke while watching Threads? Oh. I don't think... I, I, no, almost certainly not. But again, I suppose it shows the difference in perspective between the civilians and the the, the agents of the establishment. Um, the soldiers are still relatively well fed and relatively well cared for. And yes. they can make jokes about the fact that, oh, great, yeah, the first packet of crisps I've seen in 10 days and it's a flavour I don't like. There's, you know whole sequences later of the effects of starvation on the civilian population that you you suddenly realize how cosseted the soldiers still are by comparison mm. there's a shot at one point where it's when the um it's when they're using the tear gas on the civilians they've actually got proper uh what do they call them abc uh, chemical hoods on haven't they yes they must know somebody's got some equipment <laughs> um, Jimmy's dad, Mr. Kemp, is with a group of people huddling in a cemetery, and he swaps a bottle of scotch for a cigarette from the man sitting next to him. But he's still in his pocket, has his son Michael's video game, and he turns it on there, makes its little noises, and he just starts crying. Yeah. And the next we see is a picture of him and he is dead. Yes. Yep. And that's it. And I think we're now down to a cast of one, aren't we? Not quite, actually. Oh, okay. Oh, no, we've still... The people under the town hall are still holding on for a bit longer. Um, we're also told that there are no resources for burial or cremation mm. of the dead. As a result, the uh, upwards of 10 to 20 million corpses are just being allowed to decompose in the street. Yeah. Um, at four weeks... Um, a tennis court has been turned into a prison with uh, tra- the, as you say, the traffic warden yes. with a bandaged face guarding them. And uh, one of the people inside say, oh, I'm not going to be shot by a fucking traffic warden. Yeah. And we cut to the bunker and they have finally all died yeah. of suffocation. Ruth returns home and there is nothing left. Yeah, so she moves on. Mm. Courts with special powers are able to impose death sentences and an exodus has started from the cities for food whilst people start to die from fallout and cold. Ruth tries desperately to break open a tin of food. Yes. This is the bit when the light aircraft flies over it and this is one of those moments when Monty Python had a very very good eye for that kind of absurdity in moments and th- and this idea of this light aircraft flying around over people going return to your homes is just again it's it's utterly absurd. it's like arresting subversives in the run-up to the nuclear attack it's utterly absurd but somebody's been told to do it they like, probably earned their 1500 calories for the day by doing it like in um the play in the subsequent film the bed sitting room hmm which is set several years after a nuclear war, and there are just piles of rubble everywhere. And it's meant as absurdist. Yeah. But um, we have um, 
the, the remainder of police force, which is Peter Cook and Dudley Moore in traffic wardens' uniforms, in the shell of a Morris Minor suspended from balloons that keeps warning people to move on lest they be um, uh, targets for the next wave of attacks. Yeah. That's much more of the, the strange love end of the yes. story. Um, people are billeted to private houses. Yeah, that is about as well as you'd expect. Yeah, they're just thrown out into the street. Buxton must have been one of the few places in the country, and I, I don't doubt the research they've done on this, but Buxton, it, relatively unscathed in comparison to some of the other places that we've seen. You know, Paul Crew cops it, um, and I've looked on a map, Crew's in the middle of nowhere. It's only because it's got a famous railway junction that, uh, yeah. um, that it becomes a target. And yes, and so yes, Ruth is chuck it. Ruth is billeted with an old man for all of about 20 minutes before he just chucks them all out, isn't he? Yes. But then she happens to meet Bob, mm. Jimmy's old co-worker. And the the direction and acting on this bit, again, is, is incredibly well done because it's the way that, that it's the way that she doesn't make eye contact with him. She's eating. And that's all she's interested in doing. Yeah, she doesn't, and I think she, she doesn't make eye contact because if you make eye contact or if you try to socialise with people, they might ask to share what you've got. So she's kind of hunched over like an animal. Mm. And it's just, like I say, the actual, the, the staging of the sequence is, is, is really, really well done. Um, and the film gets more quiet, does it? Apart from the fact that the teletype is turned off, there's less and less dialogue. This is one of the longest sequences of conversation we get, I think, isn't it? Yeah, there's there's very little dialogue for the rest of the film. Mm. Um, a note I put is that language is traumatised. Yeah. yeah. It, people are devolving to their immediate needs. Yes, with food, food and shelter. Food and shelter. Um, you cannot trust others, other people. Yeah. Communication is damaged. Um Bob and Ruth kill a dead. Well, they they find, they, a, they dead, find yeah. a dead sheep, and they just cut meat from it and eat it raw. And Bob says he's going up to the Dales. I think, doesn't he? I think, and that's it. And Bob leaves the story. Yes, uh, he's he's making plans, but I think Ruth says that there's, there's no point because it's the same. Everywhere. Yeah, it's, yeah. We never hear from him again. No, but. Well, he, maybe he survives. Yeah, maybe he becomes the king of the north. Who knows? At four months, she has a memory of Jimmy and a memory of the woman with the dead child. Mm. At this point, we're told that there are up to 38 million dead as the spring attack has killed the harvest, as it's now autumn. Uh, agricultural workers are effectively working by hand with powered vehicles being used for the last time. Yeah. And there is a severe risk of physical or brain damage to unborn fetuses. So we segue to Ruth giving birth. Yep. In a bar in at a, Christmas. In a, uh, no, not quite at Christmas, oh. I think. But there's a, there's a barking dog um, and she has to bite through the umbilical cord. And she just cries. Yeah in despair, in guilt, 
having brought a child into a dead planet? I, I don't know. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I actually read it as she's crying with relief because the baby is superficially healthy. It's just interesting that you see it. Yeah. I can say, no, I'm not saying that your interpretation's wrong. I'm no, just, no, it never, never occurred to me. It, never, it also never occurred to me. I think that's, yeah, that's equally valid. Yeah. But as far as, I'm, as, as far as I'm concerned with the story, as soon as the war started, the earth is dead. Yes. Oh, she's... She, it's, there's, there's, there's no hope. Mine is a bit too, possibly a bit too optimistic. It's very unlikely she's crying with relief in this book. When I've read 1984 a number of times, and it's it's a hard book to wrap your head around mm. because it is a, a story of a world where there is no hope, there is no possibility of Big Brother ever being overthrown, and it's a, a hard concept to wrap your head around yeah. that that evil will triumph and rule forever. And, yeah. and Threads is the same. It will never get better. Yeah. And I think that's always the thing, and, and that's something you do see with the people, the, the, the kind of the, the disaster the, the disaster preppers with their little fa- uh, fantasies of, oh, I'll get me tent and I'll get me kit and I'll go out into the, uh, the Lincolnshire wilds for two weeks and when I come back, it'll all be over. And it's, no, it's... Yeah, there's about to be a little corner shop open, so... Yeah, it's, and that's the thing, and I think that's that's something that, that I've... I, I remember, again, uh, looking at survivors, and just that vague dread of realising that this is your life forever, from now on. You will go to sleep, you will wake up, you will go to sleep, and it's never going to get any better, it's never going to get... When you say Survivors, you mean the series? The, sorry, yes, the BBC series again, yes, yeah. Well, Survivors is almost positive because, well, because it, it's a yeah. virus and it, it hasn't destroyed mm. the ecosystem yes. of the land. Yes. And a- agriculture is possible. Yeah, and obviously the cities are sitting there waiting to be uh, wait, waiting to be used and, and, and with all their resources. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously the difference. It's Survivors... There's always that phrase, isn't there? Cozy catastrophe. Yeah. And survivors, dead, the Triffids. I mentioned something else earlier whose name escapes me now, but they all fall into that same. So the John Wyndham. Yeah, the apocalypse has happened and now the story continues. Whereas, yeah, no, this is it. Threads is the very definition of the anti cozy catastrophe. Yes. we do see Christmas where Ruth and her child and a group of other people are around the fire and they're just staring. Mm. Again, just no language, no kind of social grooming. It's just just silence because what is there to say? Yeah? Mm. Um, the vulnerable are being killed by the winter and Ruth is able to steal some grain mm. and tries to mill it herself just by crushing the grains against the ground yeah and it's clearly completely hopeless yeah but it's okay because she finds a man selling rats yes she uh, sells she buys two rats from a man this is now one year mm. and there's a there's a horrible again yes, there's, there's an inference that she's selling 
that she's buying them in return for sex. I think so, yes. But behind them is the big poster for Standard Life that says Standard Life for the rest of your life. And there's a picture of a baby on it. And it's obviously, it's, and again, it's just, I, I suspect it's the director, a bit like with the Salvation Army, it's the director seeing the moment and going, yes, we've got to get that mm. in. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic kind of moment of a director seeing an opportunity and taking it. The effect of the radiation on the atmosphere has meant that the ozone layer has been destroyed. Yes. As a result, the ultraviolet radiation will cause a massive increase in cancers and cataracts. But ironically, the, the one thing it does do, and I assume they've put filters on the cameras, everything looks nice and colour, everything's been horribly bleak and grey, and then suddenly it looks nice and colourful and the skies are blue again. And you've got this weird mismatch between quite a cheerful colour scheme and actually you know, the, the world. Yes. Um, harvests are now much... Yeah, weaker and more likely to fail without the assistance of uh, chemical fertilizers yeah. and technology. But that's okay because Britain's population has declined to medieval levels. Yes, between four and eleven million people. Mm. So that's maybe fifteen percent of yeah. what it was. So we move forward ten years after the bomb fell, and Ruth collapses, working in a field, and can't be roused. And her daughter, who is not named in dialogue, but she's actually called Jane. Okay. I think she's credited as Jane. Certainly I've seen her referred right. to as Jane. Uh, tries to rouse her. And she's, she can barely speak. And she's old. No, no, Jane can also, barely no, speak. Also, no, Jane can, yeah. Um, the, the psychological trauma, I think, of the survivors has left them unable to care for their children. Yeah. Um, she doesn't even refer to her as mum, does she? It's no, she calls her Ruth. Yeah. Um, and we see Ruth on her deathbed. She's supposed to be in her early 30s, say. So, yeah. She looks 80. Yeah. Yeah, again. In fact, my mum's nearly 80, and she looks about 20 years older than that. Wow. You know, my yeah. mum gets exercise and eats properly. Yeah. Um, but Jane just stares at her because the people just dying constantly yeah. is a fact of life. She takes a few tools, a few useful items. She takes the stuff that interests her. Yeah. Well, there's, a, there's like a, a knife and a comb. And, and I think a, a piece of cloth around Ruth's wrist or something. Mm. But it's no sense that she's taking, she's not taking mementos. No. She's she, just taking useful things. She leaves the book of birds. Yeah. Because it means nothing to her. It's, it's quite heartbreaking that Ruth, through everything, had hung on to that yeah. for 10 years. There's a makeshift school where a group of children are watching an ancient VHS tape of an edition of Words and Pictures, yeah. which was a, you know, listeners might not have been aware of it, it was a real educational programme in the 80s with, you know, for preschool children. And the edition they watch is about skeletons and skulls. Yes. And the children just stare at the screen at this flickering ancient worn-out copy. But it, again, 
the the rules say that children must be educated. This can but but the, I don't think I don't think the it's not so much that the kids don't they're not learning anything. They don't even they've got no context for what they're seeing. There's no you, there's no culture yeah. anymore. There's nothing to connect this to anything that they would understand in yeah. their lives except oh that the the thing that's left behind when a person dies that's called a skeleton. Yeah. And then it starts playing um, Dem Bones, doesn't it? On, yeah. In, okay. And there's there's an old there's an old lady. Well, she's probably about twenty seven actually giving, giving. Well, she is. Well, she is an actual old lady. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, who's watching over the children and, and just she's mouthing along because she's seen it so many times. But at least she seems comforted by it. Yeah. Um, we see Jane unpicking cloth. Yeah. In a room, and that's. Useful work. Useful work, yeah, for thin, uh, thin fingers. What's interesting as well, and I suppose that there's no, there's no sense that there's any structure to society. She's in school, then she's with well, school. <laughs> she's she's sitting in front of a TV, mm. then she's uh, pulling apart threads. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, and and then sometimes she's just wandering around, and sometimes she's dodging soldiers, and there's just a sense that there is no. I don't know. There's no fabric. No. To society anymore. It's just a succession of, and there's you know there's soldiers over there, and the soldiers probably think they're doing a good job of what, but they're not. You know, there there's, is no society. They're not protecting anything. Yeah. Margaret Thatcher said that she didn't believe in society. She only believed in individuals and families. Yes. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. Yeah. There are just individuals and there are groups of people. There's nothing connecting anything between them. No. So there's no industry, there's no culture, there's no agriculture beyond subsistence living. Life is now effectively intolerable for the survivors. At 13 years... Uh, Jane joins two other young boys Mm. um, to steal food. Um, One of them is shot and she and the other struggle over food and it turns into effect, well, rape. I think, I I think from the way that scene's directed, I think, I think you're meant to infer that, yes. I mean... If you define it as being able to give informed consent, I can't imagine that Jane understands what this is. Um, And having been told before that um, the radiation can produce brain damage, there is no reason to assume that Jane is um, unaffected. No, I don't think so. I think, isn't there... um, it's It's in Chernobyl, isn't it? There's that poor woman who's... Husband was a fireman, yes. and she's pregnant, and she goes to see him in the hospital when she uh, uh, and she's she's there with him every day as he's dying. And the this is so it's still getting a bit depressing, isn't Some, it? Somehow the fetus they, acts as a sink, doesn't it? Yes. It keeps her alive because it absorbs all the radiation into it. And I wonder if that that's you know. They wouldn't have known this at the time, but I th- at least I don't think. But that's almost I think that might be how Ruth survived, in a way, is that it was the fact that she was pregnant at the time, is is maybe maybe, you know, in the same way that that poor that poor Russian kid protected its mum from 
the radiation. I think maybe the same thing happened with Ruth and, and Jane. Well, there is at least a, a comforting epilogue to that to the story in Chernobyl that the woman was told that she would be unable to have any more children. That turned out to, in fact, be incorrect. Oh, good. Um, she did have another child who's entirely healthy. Yeah. Jane struggles through a ruined town, now pregnant as well, and she passes by some sort of soldier's mess. Yeah. And you can hear a Chuck Berry record. Yes, the same the one that's playing at the start when when Ruth and uh, Jimmy were in the car. Mm. She passes a group of um, executed bodies hanging to a hospital where the attendant then tries to send her away because it's not any kind of an emergency. But mm. there is a man in the ward um, quite badly damaged, uh, injured. Yeah. He looks a lot like Jimmy. And I oh. think, I, I don't know if it's Reese Dinsdale, the actor. It's hard to tell. But I think the inference is that that might be him. Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. I, that's, I've, I've yeah. seen suggestions online that that's supposed to be Jimmy. But it is hard to tell whether it's Reese Dinsdale. Yeah. Um, Jane gives birth. And she's handed back a, a bundle of rags yeah. soaked in blood and she unwraps it to see what's inside and the picture frees frames yeah. before she can scream. And funnily enough, in my memory, if you ask me, you hear the, you hear a scream, but obviously you don't, but that's, you know. That you don't makes it worse. Yeah. Yes, it probably does. Because it, does, it doesn't, reach the, the natural conclusion of that, yeah. that thread of thinking. And so the credits just run in silence because there's nothing else that needs to be said. Um, the film lives up to its reputation. Mm. But I think it goes beyond just being a warning about the threat of nuclear war because People were saying over and over again that nuclear war was not survivable, that it was not credible or uh, workable to think that there could be a winner, that there, that this would be a lit, that this, there could be any kind of limited exchange. But politicians and hawks would carry on with it nevertheless. They would ignore any advice from any experts that did not match their existing prejudices or hatreds or fears. And we see this over and over again. We saw this with Brexit. Yeah. We saw it with COVID. People will ignore anything that doesn't adhere to what they want to hear. And the result is cataclysm. My office in my day job is in a building next door to ITN's offices. And a couple of weeks ago, we had a huge protest outside that building by people who believed that um, the vaccination against COVID was dangerous. And they demanded to get into the building. They demanded to have the truth in the, in the press. They chased Jon Snow, the newsreader down the street, accused him of being a paedophile. They will only listen to the things that they want to hear. 
and they do not care if their own families and if their own children die. And it's only when they end up on the ventilator and they are dying that it's happened over and over again that these vaccine deniers change their minds on their deathbed. They say, oh, oh we want the vaccine now. Well, it's too late. You're dying. There was a time when you could have taken action. There was a time when you could have behaved responsibly. There was a time when you could have thought about anything other than your own ego and your own pride and done something responsible and thought about other people. But it's too late now and you're going to die. And that's what the price that you're paying for it. And that, I think, is my big takeaway from threads. Mm. People will often die before admitting they're wrong. Yeah. And threads is the story of the consequences. Thanks to Chris for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Acast, with almost 100 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time... Visit us at www.podnose.com.